Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and pop culture. My name is Nicky and I'm joined, as always, by the man who shalt have a fishy on a little dishy when the boat comes in. It's Greg. How are you today, Greg? I can tell you're pleased with that one. <laughs> you know something? I, w- I was a little bit pleased. <laughs> I wasn't massively pleased, but I-, I was okay. I mean, it was either that or I was going to say that you were also scared the first time Big Annie showed her you, her growler. <laughs> but um, I didn't think that would be uh, the most appropriate. So I went with fishy and a little dishy. But yeah, I was quite pleased with that. Uh, how are you today? All good? Very well, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, pretty good. I've obviously I've, I'm I'm home alone for a couple of weeks because my family are back in in Glasgow and I'm, I'm going to join them a week on Wednesday. So I'm looking forward to that. But uh, yeah, no, I've been been exercising. I've been off the booze. I've been eating well and sleeping well. Jesus. And, uh, yeah, I feel sort of clear headed. Um, I feel quite serene. I haven't called a paper towel dispenser a cunt <laughs> this week. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is a positive. Um, so, uh, so yeah. How are you? What's going on? Yeah, I'm all good. So you haven't been ordering little Caesar's pizza and dancing around and putting aftershave on your face after shaving no. and screaming in the mirror. When, no. you know that's the normal things you do when you're I mean, home alone. Yeah, under normal circumstances, that that's what I would do. But at the age, uh, I'm, I'm going to be 45 next week, so that's, it's about time I started acting <laughs> like it. <laughs> I'm all good, thank you. I am also home alone. Uh, my wife is away for the weekend. She's off to Cologne to to see some friends. So I, I'm also home alone. But um, yeah, I'm. I'm not well much like you i'm not i'm off the booze as well and exercising and uh yeah i've been um well not a lot actually what will i be doing this weekend probably editing the podcast mm. uh i'll go for a run and yeah that's about it nothing hugely exciting yeah. to be perfectly honest i uh i sort of ran slash walked slash stumbled three kilometers uh a couple of days this week um early in the morning obviously it's still hot as balls it's like still like in the in the mid 30s and humid literally got in the house looking like i'd been swimming in my clothes but uh but yeah it's getting a bit easier um the old apple yeah. watch uh quite a good motivator just to virtue of the fact is it tells you how fast how far you've gone how many steps you've done makes you feel quite positive uh so yeah i am i joined 13 weeks ago i joined a running club right. And it was a kind of beginner's running club. I've been running for like a year and a half or so, but I just thought, let's go back to basics and see if if I'm doing something wrong. Because I was never really improving time-wise and stuff, but I was always feeling good and I loved running. And to be fair, I have learned a lot over those 13 weeks and I have improved a lot. But there was this girl in my class and anytime, I'll be honest, it seemed like I was a bit of a teacher's pet <laughs> because anytime... We were doing, like he said, like the first lesson, go and sprint over there. So I sprinted and I like beat everybody and then turned around and then and the girl came running up and she's like, oh, <laughs> what happened to you? And th- to be fair, the teacher was like, OK, that's not how you should right. run because, you know, but I was like, OK, that's fine. I'm learning here. This is what I'm, I've paid for this class for. And then every week, like a couple of weeks later, he's like, okay, this is how you should lace your trainers. But he looks at me and he goes, oh, you've already got your trainers laced that way. I'm like, well, yeah, because I fucking watched YouTube videos (laughs) of how you should lace running trainers. I'm not a fucking idiot. And it seemed every week, you know, this one week we did exercises if you're meant to run this certain distance in big leaps and you should take like 11 leaps to do this distance. And, you know, at the end, he's like, who did it? And I was like, yeah, I did it in 11. And, you know, this girl's like, oh, (laughs) 
because <laughs> she did it in fucking 22 right. or something like it's just constant and i'm like well why are you being a fucking dick about this you know and every week we turn up and we had these homework exercises to do I'm supposed to run like twice a week and do these exercises and every week she would turn up and she would say to me did you do your homework i'm like yeah i did yeah because I've, I've paid for the fucking yeah. course I'm, I'm doing the homework i'm here to learn did you do it no <laughs> i'm like well why are you fucking, you know, being such a dick about this? So, of course, we had the final lesson last week. We were meant to run, uh, like, for, I think it was like 45 minutes. We were meant to run for, like, non-stop and run around. So, of course, I did it no bother. Yeah. No, I'm saying, like, I did it no bother. But you yeah. know what I mean? I did it no bother because I've been plan- good doing the plan. I've been doing the course. I've listened to what the teacher was telling me. I used to get a pain in my left heel when I ran. And he kind of, you know, motioned about how to, to do things. And... um I've never, I haven't had pain mm-hmm. since. Um, oh, there was one lesson. He said, how many pairs of running shoes do you have? And I, everyone said one. And I was like, I've got three. And he was like, why? And I was like, because I rotate them. Because you're not meant to run in the same pair of shoes every like day. And he's like, yes, that's a good answer. Everyone should have three pairs of shoes. She rolled her eyes at me at that as well. So I was quite happy that I did the 45 minutes and she fucking stopped about halfway through. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was like, well, there you go. There's a fucking lesson for you. Anyway, um, that's enough ranting about her. Do you think uh, somebody's perhaps bought her the club as a as a gift and she's felt sort of duty bound to... No, to... but that's the thing. Like, when we... At the end of the lesson, she's asking everyone, are you doing the next course? Because the next course is like the advanced course. Right, right. And I was like, um, I was like, well, no, I'm not going to do the next one because it's summer. Like, it's too hot. I'm, I'm going to run myself. And I do. I run like three, four mornings a week like i'll yeah. go out for a run i might ask no but i'll maybe join the one in september october which is the next one. Oh, okay well yeah i have to join it because if i don't i won't run like, well <laughs> that's your problem like so you only run fucking one night a week and that oh jesus anyway that's enough about that. <laughs> um so yes <laughs> so that's my news so <laughs> well, speaking of um, speaking of fitness um i've been watching the last couple of days uh, i don't know if you've seen any of it but it's Absolutely brilliant. Uh, Netflix has got a documentary series about American gladiators. Uh, oh, I did not know about this. Oh, no, mate, I did not know about this. It's fucking brilliant. <laughs> so good. Oh, oh, I know what I'm doing tonight now. Um, oh, fantastic. Okay, so that's all we have time for on this, Wally. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, oh my God, American gladiators. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fucking brilliant. There, I remember... There- that used to be on at like 1am on a mm. Saturday night and I used to always watch it. I mean, that was around about the time I was just going out to parties and I would come in a bit boozy and watch American Gladiators. Yeah. It was fucking brilliant. Class. There was something, it had to be a bit of an edge on the British, which was just called Gladiators. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's really good. I'll be really enjoying it. They've got a few of the OGs there, uh, Gemini, Nitro, uh, Ice, um, Laser and a few other uh, tower, uh, not 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 great names, but um, but yeah, they all speak fondly. But it's uh, yeah, it's it's exactly what you expect <laughs> when you hear when they when they take you behind the scenes. You're like, I knew all this was happening, but I'm loving hearing about it anyway. <laughs> so lots of steroids and shagging. Yeah, exactly. Imagine, yeah. <laughs> exactly that magic. I know what I will be doing tonight. Then thank you very much. Right. Well, let's get on with things so I can go watch American Gladiators <laughs> on Netflix. Um, okay, Greg, shall we have a look at what's been happening in Scotland over the last couple of weeks? Cue the jingle. Hello, this is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on 
in the news. Oh, okay, Greg. So why don't you tell us what you've seen first this week that uh, you'd like to share with me and our lovely listeners? Uh, so my first story comes from the Scottish Sun on the 10th of July. The byline reads, Rock on, hilarious moment Scotswoman dedicates Kylie Minogue's song to a gate-crashing pigeon in a boozer. Christine Mc... <laughs> be honestly, the most Scottish name you can think of. Christine, spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-E-E-N, McMurdy, was (laughs) was hosting karaoke at the Waterloo Bar in Glasgow last Sunday, as she does every week, but this time with an unexpected visitor. The 56-year-old was in the middle of her rendition of Kylie Minogue's Padam Padam, which I had to look up, because I thought this must be like a typo or something, Padam Padam, Hmm. but there is actually a Kylie song with that name. So she was in the middle of her rendition of the song when she decided to get a trapped pigeon hanging around the pub ceiling involved in the frivolities. The clip shows Christine halfway through her song when she excitedly points out the pigeon and changes the song's lyrics. Instead of Padam Padam, Christine can be heard crooning Pigeon Pigeon. I hear it and I know, this must be the lyrics to the song, uh, Pigeon, Pigeon, I know you want to take me home, Pigeon, and get to know me close. Uh, The video pans between Christine pointing upward to the pigeon before the camera person hilariously loses sight of the animal, which had fled from its original perch. The camera swiftly finds the bird again, which is now perched atop a speaker on the wall, nonchalantly staring back at the woman dedicating an entire song to it. The video was uploaded to social media on Friday with the caption, One of the best Padam covers I've seen so far on Instagram. The video has since received 130,000 likes and nearly (laughs) 1,000 comments. Uh, One user wrote, Peak British culture. Another commented, he said finally some representation. Another wrote, Kylie would love this. A fifth replied, the stars aligned for this fantastic moment. I think taking it a wee bit too far there. Speaking today, Christine said, I host karaoke every Sunday at 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock on Wacky Wednesday in the Waterloo Bar, Argyle Street. It's the oldest gay bar in Glasgow dating back to the 1950s. Hmm, I would take exception to that. Not sure there was a lot of gay bars in Glasgow in the 1950s, mainly because... It was illegal in the 1950s. She, she, she does caveat it with, I think. It's the oldest gay bar in Glasgow dating back to the 1950s, I think. Because of the heat in Scotland, the doors had been left opened and it just toddled in, but it couldn't find its way back out. As soon as I walked in to do my karaoke gig, everyone was looking up and then I clocked the pigeon. I had been singing Padam Padam for a couple of weeks and the LGBTQI plus family all obviously love Kylie. Christine continues, I started singing the song and the pigeon, which somebody named Percy, started to fly about. (laughs) (laughs) I then automatically changed it to pigeon, pigeon. We all tried to coo it down. We were throwing tidbits for it like bread, (laughs) but to no avail. The ceilings in the water were 20 foot high, so our ladders wouldn't even touch it. The crowd were all cooing and joining in, laughing and singing along. I've sung it numerous times since then, and they demand that I stick to pigeon, pigeon, instead of padam, padam. Uh, The pigeon toddled out the door casually on the Tuesday. Three days it was in there. (laughs) Fuck's sake, poor pigeon. I'm going to listen to her singing at it for three days. Uh, Manager S. Allison had called the RSP on the Monday, but they said give it another day. It may find its way out. So, I think Christine is incorrect with her assertion that the Waterloo Bar is the oldest gay bar in Glasgow. I'm pretty sure that the first gay bar in Glasgow was opened by my old boss when I worked at the tunnel, Colin Barr, 
and it was Bennett's on Glassford Street, which I think he opened in the 1970s. But, you know, I will caveat that with, I think, much like Christine did with her theme about the water. Did they have a pigeon? <laughs> I've never been in Bennett's, so I've no oh. idea. Okay. <laughs> um, what, what song would you sing to a pigeon if you... Had a pigeon, you were on karaoke. What would, you, what would you sing? If I saw a pigeon, I don't know yet, I guess. Maybe the obvious one would be to sing Come Fly With Me by Frank Sinatra, but it's a wee bit too, hmm. it's maybe a wee bit too on the nose. What about you? you um, probably more on the nose, but I don't know if the karaoke bar would have the theme tune to Pigeon Street. I mean, honestly, that has to be one of the best themes, the best beginnings of a theme of a theme tune of a kids program of that uh, era. Just those first, like that first bar, just lifts you up. If you live on Pigeon Street, here are the people that you could meet. Yeah, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. So this pigeon, I, yeah, I've never heard of that Kylie song either. I'm sure if I'd heard it, I would recognise it, maybe. But she decided to just sing to this pigeon. Yeah. This poor pigeon had to be subjected, probably terrified. I know. Some. I'm just getting flashbacks to uh, the the last episode that we did on uh, Scott Squad of the karaoke party, and imagining <laughs> this um, rather larger drunken Glaswegian lady singing. Padam, pigeon padam. Street to oh, this pigeon. pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, you know, I mean, it's just anything will make the news these days, evidently. If it's on social media, the sun will give it a few columns on its website. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, why not? Why not? You know, that's why we've got this podcast, right? To cover the fucking ridiculous stories <laughs> that come from Scotland. And God bless them for oh, doing it. Dear. Anyway. Um, that was my first story. What's your first one this week? Well, Greg, my first story comes from the Scottish Sun um, this week. <laughs> and it is probably my worst nightmare come to life and something that I, I could never do. Never, ever do. A hilarious photo shows a brave Aberdeen fan walking the streets of Glasgow in his stag do whilst wearing a half-and-half Rangers and Celtic kit. (laughs) Duncan Hendry was out and about in Glasgow last month when he stumbled across a stag party in the middle of the city. The 25-year-old couldn't believe his eyes when he noticed one of the group supporting a football fashion nightmare. Revealing that he was in fact an Aberdeen fan, the bold groom was clad in a top boasting the green hoops of Celtic and the blue of Rangers in an unholy mix. That's a good pun. I bet he was fucking delighted with himself for that. Uh, the two teams have played 436 official derbies. I don't think they have, actually, because I'm pretty sure Rangers died. And so I don't know what the new team have. And then he, he goes on about some sort of scorelines. He wasn't wearing a retro kit. It was a it was a new Rangers kit. So, yeah, that can't be true. Um as such, any punter brave or daft enough to sit on the fence uh, to support both teams is likely to be subject to a barrage of abuse uh, from both sets of supporters. An image taken uh, by Duncan as he parted ways after his brief interaction with the stag do shows the groom-to-be in a Blue Ranger shorts, white and green Celtic socks and the cringe-inducing half-and-half shirt. The man, hilariously, appears to be nervously clutching his arms to his body, perhaps in an attempt to try and cover the top he has on display from the curious eyes of locals. Watford Van Duncan uh, shared the image to social media that day with a caption to the Aberdeen... Sorry, Watford. uh, To the Aberdeen supporter on his stag do. Good luck. 
I don't know if that's a Watford accent. I've no idea what Watford. Well, Elton John's Watford, isn't he? So uh, well, yeah. to the Aberdeen supporter <laughs> on his step doing Glasgow. Good luck. Uh, Elton, the John's voice, has... Elton John's voice is much more to the Aberdeen supporter. Ever since he had that throat surgery in the in the nineties for taking too much cocaine and smoking too many fags, his voice is up. <laughs> To the Aberdeen supporter. <laughs> the um the post has received over four hundred likes and dozens of comments from bewildered football fans. One user wrote, "Typical Aberdeen fan, if you ask me." Fuck you, one user. I don't know who you are, but you're a fucking cunt. Um, another commented, "Must be a Saint Mirren fan lying down to both sides of the old firm." Um, a third joked, "Who in their That's right mind goes to Glasgow for a stag do?" I think I take more exception to that than any other comment. <laughs> Uh, another person said it's bad enough having to wear one let alone both speaking today Duncan said I was walking to Queen Street Station after a couple of pints and I saw him I spoke to them briefly asked which side he actually supported Uh, that's a typical fucking question when you're in Glasgow Um, and he said they were from Aberdeen loads of people were taking photos and a couple of boys that looked about 10 years old were hurling abuse at him that's fucking brilliant (laughs) that's what I expect from Glasgow the boy (laughs) The boy was pretty much a celebrity. Come on, was he? Really? Was he a celebrity or just a target of abuse? I just thought that he was mental for even considering doing it. Uh, the latest half-and-half strip scene on the streets of Glasgow is reminiscent for the times a Scottish Sun reporter dared to venture out wearing a similar kit. <laughs> Uh, next season we will see blah 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 load of crap about Celtic and Rangers um, so this gives to me like the half and half it's a fucking great prank I remember um, it's an Aberdeen player Shay Logan and he had a, a bit of an altercation with Celtic and a bit of an altercation one of the um, the Celtic players said racist abuse to right. him and it went to court in like tribunal the player got banned so for that, that reason Celtic hated Shea Logan and always used to boo him and Shea Logan fucking hated Celtic as a kind of yeah. like a kind of retribution to it. Um so when Shea Logan had a stag do, his mates made him wear a full Celtic strip on his stag do, uh, with I think Brown eight on the back because he <laughs> fucking hated Scott Brown really with a passion. Um so I can see that's a funny joke. Fucking hell, walking round Glasgow with a half and half strip, I mean surely people would take it as a joke, but there's gotta be some people there that wouldn't take it as a joke. Um, I think probably more people wouldn't take it as a joke than would, if I'm honest. Oh, really? Depends, yeah, you yeah, think so? Yeah, yeah I think, well, I think it, it depends on a number of factors. It depends on the time of the day, the day of the week, and mm. the, and obviously the, the kind of pubs that you're, that you're straying into. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I was, I I'm, I'm saying that. I think you're probably right, actually. I think probably people would, would probably go up and ask them, what side do you really support? And there's not, there's no real, you know, for an Aberdeen fan, there's no right answer. That's <laughs> really yeah. in Glasgow, um, yeah. you know. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, these sort of, th- I, I never understood. I was always really thankful that in my stag do, when we all went to Barcelona, there was nobody ever fucking made me go about like an bloody tartan miniskirt or some nonsense. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I thought. Remember the time I was getting married because quite a few people like, in my sort of circle of friends got married. Remember at the same time I went to quite a lot of stag do's over that sort of two year period, and the only sort of traditional thing that we did <laughs> was the one that I was on with you in Madrid when the our mutual friends stag do, and when he went off to his bed a few hours before us. We came back. You were sharing a room with him, and uh, you knelt on his head while his 
friends, I'm holding up the uh, quotation mark fingers, covered them in big shaven foam and all kinds of shite. Um, but that was just like a one-off humiliation. It wasn't like a protracted night on the town humiliation. Well, the, the traditional one in Aberdeen... I don't know if it was just an Aberdeen thing, is a blackening. And my brother-in-law got that before his wedding and he got stripped naked, tied to a lamppost in like on a roundabout, in a busy roundabout in Aberdeen, covered in, it was like tar, but it wouldn't have been tar, but it was like a black substance and covered in feathers and just left there for a couple of hours. (laughs) Like and that's that was the traditional kind of stag do jape in Aberdeen back in the kind of nineties yeah. um, amongst the oil workers. So yeah, it was called a blackening, and it was quite a. I mean, probably not quite politically correct nowadays, to but um, the, to call it the blackening, I know a better no, name for it. But um, I, I do remember the concept of the blackening because when I moved to. Aberdeenshire. I used to get the bus to school and whenever it was somebody's birthday on the bus, whenever we got off the bus back at home, that <laughs> person would be pelted with flowers and eggs and it was called the blackening. It was called the blackening, so that makes it sound like some sort of, <laughs> some sort of Bloomhouse horror film or... <laughs> Or some <laughs> dreadful 70s sitcom on ITV, one or the other. Um, um, but it was, yeah, they, but, and I was always really thankful that my birthday was was deep in the summer, so I was never in the school bus. Because um, for some reason, if it was your birthday in the summer, if you weren't at school, nobody did anything like that to you. But if your no. birthday was in term time, you know, like some people got off the bus and just fucking sprint home. And then the people, there was always like two or three people who were proponents of doing the blackening and they'd always be really pissed off and really they felt they always felt really cheated if the person whose birthday it was managed to run away without without getting covered in shite where and then they always felt that the person who just stood there and took it was a good sport um but it never happened to me and i hope it never does (laughs) i've just i've never understood this half and half thing i know this is a joke kind of wearing a half and half rangers and celtic top but you see it all the time of a couple of months ago there was the fa cup final man united versus man city and there was a post on the bbc about this flag seller and all the scarves and stuff he was selling and one of them was like half and half scarf yeah man united man city and i'm like who the fuck is gonna buy that i mean obviously a tourist a tourist <laughs> an Arab that's you know gonna buy that i i was i dissuaded from saying any nationality but a tourist would buy that because i guess it's a memento they maybe have no kind of stake in the game they're just going to an fa cup final i mean i guess if i think if i was going to no, I would never would. Like, I'm thinking if I was going to, like, a Spanish Cup final, Barca versus Real Madrid, would I buy a half and a half scarf? No, of course I wouldn't. And I've never understood that. However, I did think about this earlier day because I was thinking about this point that I was going to bring up. And I was like, mind you, I think it's maybe acceptable if it's something like a massive occasion, like a, let's take the opening game, France 98, Scotland, Brazil, mm. a half and half scarf there. It, it's acceptable because it's kind of a friendly occasion. It's a, yeah. uh, you know, it's not friendly. It's the World Cup game, but but the fans are it's friendly, kind of a you know with each yeah, other. Yeah, so it's okay. But then to have like a fucking Man United, Man City, or like a Man U Liverpool, or you know, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a Rangers Celtic half and half scarf. I'm sure it exists, um, <laughs> but. It's just bizarre for me. I would never buy like an Aberdeen with someone scarf. But I, I, yeah, potentially I maybe would have bought a Scotland Brazil scarf because it's like it's a memento. Like, fuck, this will commemorate this occasion. I was here. It's once in a lifetime type thing. But 
I'm never going to buy a fucking Aberdeen St Mirren half and a half scarf. Like, I don't understand this logic, but you're right, it's tourists. And I think every time, uh, every time somebody makes a Celtic and Rangers half and half strip, every time someone does that, the Loudon Bar has to reapply for its liquor license. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, it's like Peter Pan. Every time somebody says they don't believe in fairies, like a fairy's da- a fairy dies somewhere. <laughs> Never mind. Oh well. So, um, so yes, that is my tale of the half and half stag do in Glasgow. What else have you seen this week, Greg? Uh, okay, so my next story, uh, shockingly, comes from the Scottish Sun. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the headline reads: Sidewash Petty. Scots slammed in neighbourhood row for power washing one side of shared steps. Heather Gray was shocked when she noticed that disgruntled Frank Tonner had jet washed only the left side of the concrete steps outside their homes. There's a picture of the steps, so I, I don't know how many steps there are. It's one of these ones that I guess it goes up to like a sort of terraced house situation. But um, yeah, Frank has perfectly <laughs> jet washed <laughs> his own side of the. I mean, the steps are perhaps a meter and a half wide. Um, yeah, he's but with some precision. He's uh, jet washed one half. So the feuding pair from Bowness near Falkirk are believed to have been at loggerheads for years, with Heather claiming that Frank has been petty with her ever since she moved in. But Frank decided to up the ante this week after saying he was fed up with the mess being left in Heather's garden. Images show the stone steps leading up to the pair's respective homes that have been power washed on one side with an immaculate divide right down the middle. Heather took to social media on Sunday to share the images after discovering the petty act upon her return home. She said, Anyone else got neighbours petty enough to only power wash one half of the shared steps? But within hours, Frank, who's 60, and frankly should know better, hit back with allegations against Heather saying, Hi, I am that neighbour. If they would have come and asked, I had to stop for the rain. I also take pride in my garden, unlike others. We loved sitting outside, but that has now stopped because we can only smell weed all day, every day. However, Heather then hit back, adding, I appreciate your comments, and I recognise I may have jumped to conclusions, but you can hardly blame me given the sheer amount of pettiness over the years. Plus, the split down the middle seems pretty intentional. I'm compelled to agree with Heather on that point. Um, She goes on to say, You say I could have just come and talked to you, but then why haven't you? I even put a note through your door the first week I moved in and messaged Sam, don't know who Sam is, and they don't seem compelled to tell us, because no one wants to have a bad relationship with their neighbours. I even knew yous before I moved in, for fuck's sake, but you just totally ignored me and were constantly childish from the very start. I would genuinely love to know why, because it's perplexed me for years and felt very unfair. Frank then later wrote a post of his own claiming, again, Hi, I'm the petty neighbour who had to stop for the rain. If they'd asked instead of posting this, they should think about their, he spelt their, T-H-E-R-E, it's a shame, to think about their own garden mess, which has been there, spelt it correctly that time, at the front door for months. Perhaps if they weren't smoking weed all day every day, I also have photos, but I'm not sad enough to post them. 
Seemingly bewildered by Frank's ongoing allegations, Heller responded again replying, We're really giving everyone a show now. I've already replied to you in the other post, but I will throw in that we both have full-time jobs, so your comment is a bit dramatic. Speaking to the Scottish Sun, Heller said, My neighbour has accused us of smoking weed all day every day, and whilst my partner may be partial to a smoke in his shed, (laughs) at the end of the day... His comment blows it way out of proportion. I feel bad for posting this as I genuinely didn't want him to be directly attacked. Honestly, I didn't expect him to see it or comment on it. The post has since received over 700 likes and dozens of comments from users split in their opinions about the pair's feud. Kelly Patterson, whoever the fuck that is, said, There's two sides to every story, I guess. Where we think it's petty, it could be a build-up of years of doing it all the time and the neighbours not doing their fair share. I'd get pissed off too, but that's just speculation. I don't know the circumstances. Emma Jackson Brown wrote, Surely it took longer to do a straight line than just do them all. (laughs) I mean, you're right. Greg McConnell said, Crazy how that rain stopped you right at the time you had done exactly half of the steps. (laughs) And then Samantha Riddell commented, I'm pretty impressed how straight the line is. It looks exactly half. (laughs) So yeah, that's um, uh, yet another pointless dispute between neighbours in in modern Scotland. <laughs> I've seen this photo and he has 100%, without a doubt, put down tarpaulin or <laughs> masking tape to make the most perfect line you could ever see in terms of power washing. Because if you're power washing, there's splashes go yeah. everywhere. So there'd be little bits of her side that would be clean. He has 100% put down tarpaulin or something to to be a dick. Well, I, I don't know. Is it petty or is it... I, I don't know. If he's got a problem with them, if they're smoking weed all day, every day... <laughs> In the shed. <laughs> smoke weed every day. Um, is there... An issue is he's obviously got a grievance with them, so this is how he's decided to is it passive aggressive? Yes. Is it funny? Yes. <laughs> is it like, has it annoyed her? Yes. So it's ticked all the boxes yeah. for this sixty year old gentleman. He's achieved exactly what he wants. The thing and that, now he's got national fame. The thing that struck me about the picture is that whilst the line is absolutely with precision an immaculate line it seems like that he's it's not quite even because on the other the the half that he's power washed looks a little bit smaller than the half that he hasn't it's not like dead down the middle i don't i mean you know i just i find i always find it quite funny when people who are at an age where you would expect can rise above pettiness resort to something like this <laughs> you've got nothing better to do so <laughs> why not it's sort of pettiness not, not, I mean you, people don't retire when they're 60 days and all out at work every well, day well that's true but we don't know his backstory maybe he's just embroiled with sort of bitterness about something and just decides to take it out on his neighbour maybe I, I, I don't know I just I, start, I, I just I just find it bewildering you know surely there's you know the fact that like a tub of Lurpak spreadable costs almost £5 now <laughs> It's perhaps a more contentious issue than your neighbour being mildly irritating by smoking weed in their shed. Have you ever had neighbours that you've been pissed off with? I'd, no, I've been quite lucky uh, in that sense. I've never... Um, I'm just trying to think. Well, I, well, when I lived in Aberdeen, actually, there was a guy who lived next door to my flat in the Galleria, and he was a policeman, or he certainly claimed to be a policeman anyway. And the first night that we... 
the, f- the first night that we'd moved in, uh, my flatmate Dale and I had a few pals round and it was pretty noisy and it went until, I remember like the sun was coming up when he came and knocked on the door <laughs> and with completely indelicately told us to shut the fuck up because he had his work in the morning and I was like, yeah, fair enough. But then it was just... Every time we had a party, I would go around and say that we're going to have a party, just so you know. And sometimes, the funny thing was, he had a girlfriend who he wouldn't let smoke in the flat. So you remember that flat had a kind of courtyard outside. So sometimes I would come in and she'd be sitting on the little sort of be- this kind of bench having a smoke. So I would sit and have a chat to her and have a cigarette myself and stuff. So sometimes she would come, if we had people around and we're having some drinks, If we, I would never like invite her, I'd never number of anything, but if I saw her, I'd be like, Oh, or you know, you should come in if you come, come in and have a drink if you want. And she would like stay for hours and hours and hours and get fucking hammered. And he used to come round and ask if she was there, and I would say, Yeah, she's here. Come on in. No, no, I'm not coming. I'm not coming in. And then she'd sort of gingerly, with her tail between her legs, go home. But you could tell that she would. She wanted to stay. But yeah, he was like the, probably the closest thing to a pain in the arse neighbour. What about you? You've had pain in the arse flatmates before, haven't you? <laughs> You've been in Norwich. Um, well, yeah, Norwich was a, a different story. I mean, yeah, a couple of pain in the arse flatmates. That's maybe a... It's quite a dark tale for for one of those. Um, the, the worst I can think of that is funny to tell on a podcast is, uh, yeah, when I was in Dubai, but moved into my, my new house, my new villa, and was quite happy with it. And then my next door neighbour was fine for the first like few days and then I realised that every Friday, Saturday night he would have a fucking massive party but this party started at like 3, 4am and and it was I, I remember saying to you, the music was very, of a kind of Arabic, Arabic kind of yeah, basically, yeah. and I remember saying to you, like I wouldn't mind, you know, if it was decent music, and you, I remember you texting me like, I think mate, at 4 o'clock in the morning if they're playing the Manic Street Preachers, you're still going to be pretty <laughs> yeah. pissed off, and I was like yeah, you've got a good point there, he used to play like, basically fucking Arabic techno or music uh, and I, I'm not joking, my whole wall shook when he played this however when i first moved in he had already said that he had a neighbor with the neighbor uh, he had a a, a disagreement with the neighbor one down from me who Mm. had obviously complained to him many times so i never said a word to this guy next door about it because i didn't want him to think i was i was blaming him so i would just secretly go off and uh, nip out and switch off his power because <laughs> i knew how to switch off the power in the villas you could do it from outside so yeah. i'd switch off his power and it would take them a good half hour to realize and by that time the party's over yeah, because yeah. you've had 20 minutes out of power yeah. um or i would call security um quite a few times i called the police on him um <laughs> and that shut him down and when i saw him when he was moving out he was like yeah i can't live here anymore like it's the the guy two doors down he keeps calling the police and stuff like <laughs> No, I was like, oh, what a dick. I can't believe that. That's so terrible. I've never really heard anything. Uh, but yeah, he was such a fucking dick. Um, but then I used to take my own back because he would play this music. So then I'd wait. And then at like about nine, ten o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, I would put on like Steel Panther or like Metallica full volume and then go out and play a round of golf for four hours. <laughs> so I'm like, well gets my own back really and i don't know if it made any difference because he might have slipped through it but it kind of made me feel better anyway anyway Did, um didn't you, you wouldn't have got a- didn't you also 
climb into his house one day and swap your broken drawer for his unbroken drawer. <laughs> I was just about to say, I don't know if he would have got his deposit back for that house because I did break into his house and steal his drawer and some of his shower fixtures. So, um, yeah. So I don't know if he would have got his deposit back. So, um, yeah, who was the winner there? Uh, mm. Maybe me. But I had to listen to a lot of Arabic music. But never mind. That's him. <laughs> Petty neighbours. Who needs them? Yeah, exactly. Nobody does. Exactly. Okay, well, that was my second and final story for this episode. What's your next one? Right. This is kind of a two-part story I have, Greg. And it's a story I read a couple of weeks ago, and it's been an update. So I'm going to try and explain this as best I can without having to jump back and forth with two stories. So this is from the Daily Record. So you'd be happy to know we don't have a full Scottish Sun episode this week. So the original story was about this guy, Dan Knight, who lost his provisional driving license when he was on holiday in Magaluf. And he was really upset that he'd lost it because it was his only form of ID. And I, well, I guess he must have a fucking passport if he's gone to Magaluf. Um, but <laughs> it, it was kind of his only form of ID. So he was upset about it. And he got a letter from this girl called Kirsty in Glasgow and who had sent him his provisional driving license. And it said, hello, I find this outside this club in Magaluf on Tuesday. I checked the hotel you were staying at and because it was obviously dropped outside the hotel, but they said you weren't staying there. I checked social media, but I couldn't find you. So I brought it home to Scotland and sent it to you when I got home because she'd obviously found his, I think the address is in the driving license. Um, hope this finds you Kirsty. So my theory about this is because the, the gentleman in question, Dan, had put a plea out in the daily record mm. and media to say, can I find this girl Kirsty because she's done this good thing and retrieved my license and it, you know it's a good thing now my as soon as I read the original article I was like right Dan you're 21 he's not the best looking lad <laughs> he's seen this girl Kirsty has retrieved his license sent it to him gotten all that bother he's thinking I'm gonna get a ride out of <laughs> right that's my first thought because he's like right I didn't get a shag in Magaluf. I'm going to get a ride out of Kirsty that's found my license. She's obviously seen my picture on the provisional driving license. So she's obviously keen. She sent this back. Anyway, so the, the article from the other record. Um, woman hailed soundest in the world after a reunited lad with lost Magaluf ID. Uh, so a mystery Scotswoman who reunited a student with ID he lost in Magaluf has come forward as a mum from Glasgow. Sheffield lad Dan Knight, 21, had flown to Magaluf for a holiday with his pals, but he was left gutted when he lost his provisional licence 1,000 miles away from home. But the history and politics student was left speechless when he got a handwritten letter from Kirsty in Scotland and his ID showed up at the door. In his efforts to find the Good Samaritan, Kirsty, Dan got in touch with the record to trace this person who he dubbed the soundest girl in the world. Just days after reading Dan's appeal in the paper, Kirsty McIntyre has come forward to tell Dan she is glad his ideas was turned to the rightful owner. The 47-year-old from Glasgow said, It made my week. <laughs> Dan's story, I was gobsmacked. 
I can't believe he has gone to all this effort to trying to find me and I just want to say thank you. I'm just glad it got back to him. Kirsty found Dan's ID outside the hotel uh, while she was on holiday with her partner. She continued, I found it outside the HM Martinique Hotel where we were staying. I could see it was a provisional license and I thought, oh, that'll be a nightmare if he's got his test booked. We looked all of our social media before posting, so I was thrilled to see it got back to him. My own daughter is 17. Here you go, you might get a chance with our daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I'd like to think if she ever loses her license, someone would return it to her. It's such an inconvenience. So it was just so easy for us to just pop it in an envelope with a stamp and send it back to him. Speaking last week, Dan said, oh, I returned home and I have got my ID a few days later. I couldn't stop grinning when I read Kirsty's note. It was sent with a first class stamp as well. <laughs> oh, so you thought you'd caught a rich Scottish girl there, didn't you, Dan? Uh, it's such a lovely gesture. No one knows who she is and I'm desperate to say thank you. Kirsty, whoever you are, you're the soundest girl in the world. After Kirsty came forward, Dan said, oh, it's lovely that um, to this day someone will go to that level um, and that someone is so nice. The fact that someone out in Magaluf would go so far as to take it home, look after it and post it is really special. So I'd like to say thanks again. I'm very grateful. Uh, so yeah, so that's it. And So he's gone from, when he got this original letter, he's thinking, right, I'm in here. He's like, oh, it's the soundest girl in the world. Once he finds out it's a 47-year-old mom of three, he's like, yeah, it's such a lovely gesture. Thank you, Kirsty. Um, I really appreciate it, the effort you've gone to. I mean, am I wrong in thinking that when I first read that article, Dan was just looking for his hole? No, I don't think so. Um, I think... That's a fair assumption. And also, be, the easiest thing in the world would be would have been for Dan to go on the fucking uh, website and order himself a new professional license. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. And yeah, then, I think it's quite easy. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing is that, that she's literally... His address is obviously on his license, right? I think your address is on your British license. Yeah. So no, like, so I mean, to be fair... He's he's got home. He's lost his license. It's he's probably waited like a week, and you know what it's like. You come back from holiday, you think, right, I need to get that sorted. Then he's got that in the post from this letter from this girl saying, "Kirsty, I found it outside a bar in Magaloo." He's got to be thinking, right, there's a good chance this bar's tidy. I didn't get a ride in Magaloo. <laughs> I mean, is there a good Let's chance? Let's put out an appeal. <laughs> <laughs> because if she sent that back, because yeah, I don't know. But so, are you not thinking like he's maybe thinking. Do you know what I mean, like I'd understand if it was like if like he'd lost his license on Bondi Beach in Sydney, or you know, some or you know, somewhere like that, like the right. beach in Rio. <laughs> it's fucking Magaluf. Like, Anybody could have found it. <laughs> let me track that back. She has obviously found his license. She's seen his photo. She's obviously thought right. If he's looks like Herman Munster, I'm not going to send this back. She's obviously, in his mind, she's obviously thought, oh, he's quite tidy. You know what? I'll do the right thing and send this back. So she has sent it back. So he's thinking, oh, she's obviously thought I'm a bit of all right. So I'm going to put an appeal to find this girl and maybe it'll end up like an episode of Blind Date. We'll get married and, you know, have babies. and It could be the game of life. But as it turns out, it's a 47 Mama 3. And he's fucking gutted, I bet. I bet he is gutted. I mean, you would think that at the age of 21, he'd have a full driving license. Instead of just 
basically. <laughs> and then he could have he could have driven up to uh, Glasgow and uh, and thanked Kirsty in person. I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect that you've maybe given this maybe a wee bit too much thought, perhaps, <laughs> or maybe it's okay. just maybe it's just the maybe it's just the romantic that I know resides within you. There, it's just you've sort of, you know you've saw like and some saga there. Oh, I see. So it's just a an Oculus story about somebody returning a driving license. I don't know that you do meet people who just like to do a good deed. You know what yeah, I mean? Kirsty just thought, oh, I can I can fling this in the post when I get back. You know, they, I'm sure that he'll be annoyed that he's lost it. I'll send it back to him. Um, obviously, neither party realising that you can apply for a replacement license if you lose if you lose one. And uh, you know, I do agree with you. Dan's probably thought, aye aye. You know, he's just spent a week in Magaluf. Maybe he's not got his hole, as you've said. He might be the first person ever to go to Magaluf and not get his hole. But regardless, <laughs> he's seen an opportunity, and uh, and it's not been what he thought it was going to be. You ever been to Magaluf? I don't think I need to go to Magaluf. I've watched enough. Um, <laughs> I've watched enough Brits abroad. I have been to Malia in Crete which apparently shares quite a lot of the same DNA. In fact, I think um, the Inbetweeners movie, I think, is filmed in Malia. You know the one when they go on yeah, holiday? It is. It's yeah. Malia. Um, I wasn't staying in Malia. I was staying in Ice Nicolaius, which was a nicer part, just up the roads with my family. But I got I got in with a bad crowd, and we had a night out in Malia. So, uh, and there's a reason why people call it Shagaloof, Nikki. You know, hmm. <laughs> I didn't invent oh. that. <laughs> that oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I know. No. He's probably the first person ever to go there and not get his boss out. <laughs> but we don't know he didn't get his boss out. I've just said that because I'm presuming. I'm sure he did. I'm, I I'm am, sure I am did. convinced by what you said that he did not get his boss out in Magaluf. Yeah. Let's say he didn't get his boss out. And if you've got an issue with that, get in touch with the podcast, culturesvalley at gmail.com, and we will read out your claim. Yeah. Let us know what you of... think. Do you think Dan got... Got his Nat King in Magaluf or not? Yeah. How many fantasy birds you shagged <laughs> in Magaluf, Dan? Okay then, Greg. Uh, have you got anything else this week that you'd like to cover? No? Uh, nope. That's uh, that's that's all I've got this okay. week. Okay. Well, uh, before we go on to what we're going to be talking about today, normally I would say let's have a little word from our sponsors. And we do, because we're going to talk about our sponsors, Doric Skateboards, which is a skateboard brand created by Gary Kemp, whose main focus is to explore the people and culture of Aberdeen and the northeast of Scotland to create designs that reflect life in that area. Doric Skateboards screen print their own decks in their studio by Gary's fair hand and they have produced some amazing decks over the years including an Annie Lennox inspired board, a Robert the Bruce deck, a plenty of pop deck inspired by the old Bonacord trucks that used to drive around Aberdeen delivering fizzy drinks and Doric Skateboards also replicate these amazing designs onto their clothing on 100% organic cotton tees, hoodies and sweatshirts and you can fill your boots on stickers pin badges and beanies too. Gary regularly collaborates with local artists to ensure he brings the latest designs to the market, but always with a Doric twist, including a new Northfield tower design, which you will be able to find on DoricSkateboards.com and on Instagram at Doric Skateboards. And we are delighted to be able to offer you 15% off as listeners to this podcast. All you need to do is head to DoricSkateboards.com and have a look at the amazing decks, stickers, badges, hoodies and tees on offer. All you have to do is enter the promo code SWALLY and that's S-W-A-L-L-Y 
L-L-Y, same as the name of this podcast, all uppercase as well, uh, and avail your 15% off offer. That's dorkskateboards.com. I enjoyed, uh, did you see uh, Gary's post the other day? Um, it was, uh, I think it was on his Instagram stories, and he did a wee video in his uh, studio salon. Mm. I'm not sure what you would call it. Work Workspace. Studio. Um, yeah. And uh, he, he obviously got it was a it was a product that he's working on, and um, he over he dubbed over uh, one of Donald Trump's speeches where he's saying, you know, it, it, when when Trump's saying it's going well, you know, we've still got a lot to do. <laughs> just, um, I can't remember. What, I, I'd heard that Trump speech before, but I can't remember what it was in relation to. But it just just made me laugh that uh, like Gary was exploiting um, uh, Donald's nonsense for. A cheeky little Instagram video. Oh, very good. Oh. Okay, Greg. So it was your choice of what we're going to be talking about today on the Culture Swally. So why do you tell us what we're going to be talking about today? So I had never, I didn't know anything about this film. I never heard of it. Um, but after we did Scott Squad last week, and I was looking at the cast to see what else they'd been in, what else they'd done. So I didn't know very many of them. Obviously, I knew Jack Doherty, I knew Grado, but the other actors. Uh, I didn't know an awful lot about. So I was looking up Jordan Young, um, who plays PC McLaren, and this film came up on his IMDb. So the film that I chose this week is the 2013 film For Those in Peril. Uh, it stars George Mackay, uh, the, aforemers- the aforementioned Jordan Young, and Kate Dickey. Uh, it tells the story of Aaron, the young sole survivor of the sinking of a community fishing boat that claimed the life of his older brother. Michael and those of the other men on the boat. Uh, Aaron, now severely traumatised, has been pariahed by the community uh, as he and his mum, uh, played by Kate Dickey, try to come to terms with the tragedy. So I think that you also had never heard of this film. Even though we've had George mm. Mackay in the podcast before, when he, we did Sunshine and Leith, he plays a lead in that. Um, I think one of us said that the most Scottish thing about George Mackay is his second name. And I think that's true of this film as well. His Scottish accent hasn't really improved. But uh, was this the first time that you'd uh, come across it? Yes, first time I'd come across it. And never really heard of it until you brought it up on the last episode. Um, Yeah, I did wonder when I was watching this film, but wow, it made quite an impact on me. It's uh, There's not a lot of story in this film, and there's not a lot that happens, but my god, the atmosphere dripping throughout this is just incredible. As I say, there's not a huge amount of plot, but I initially I love the mixture of kind of home movies and news inserts, and it's a trick that I think Shane Meadows has used in like Dead Man's mm. Shoes, and, and, and it works just as effectively here with like the news coverage and the voiceovers from the townsfolk. And it, it's such a it's such a wonderful kind of gripping story. I'll be honest, like maybe 10 minutes in, I was thinking, oh God, can I be arsed with this? But then as it went on, it got me gripped. And I think it was because of the, the performances by George Mackay, who is phenomenal in this. And Kate Dickey, who, oh my God, she's incredible in this film. But it, it just kind of kept me going. And then until the ending, which we will talk about later but my god that that made such an impact in me and i have to admit like a couple of days later watching this film it still kind of stuck with mm. me i was still thinking about it because wow what a film it's a powerful film um i uh i remember 
I watched maybe last year. I watched uh, the Florence Pugh movie Midsummer. It's a sort of kind of mm. Wicker Manny um, film. Yeah, and it's 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 quite long. There are some pretty disturbing moments in it, and all the way through the film, I was just thinking, oh, I need to get to the end of this film. It needs to finish soon. I got to get the end of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it, Midsummer is quite long. This movie isn't. Yeah. Really long uh, by comparison, but the thing is, like when I, when they got to the end of the film, I was kind of relieved, and I was quite surprised to your point that it sort of stayed with me for quite a long time after I watched it. I, mm. You know, what I mean, I, I found myself kind of thinking about scenes in the film, moments in the film, the themes of the film, and this is quite this has had quite a similar impact on me to that movie like i mean the the, the film itself b- before you and i started recording we were talking about the new series of black mirror you know like this essentially could be because of the ending it could be an episode of black mirror you know what i mean yeah, essentially right. yeah. or something like that you know a, a sort of story with a that you think is one thing that turns out to be something completely different in the last few minutes yeah i mean it was it's again like when i watching the movie i wasn't really enjoying it that much if i'm honest but i've watched it twice I enjoyed it more the second time, um, mm. and I've can and, and not just because we're covering it in the podcast, but I've been thinking about it sort of kind of constantly since I watched it on Wednesday night. <laughs> no, I think I'll agree. I watched it twice as well, and I'll be honest: the first time I watched it, maybe the first half hour, I'm like, okay, this is a bit, mm. meh. and then it started to build up. I think I can probably put the point on of it when Michael Smiley turns up. That's when kind of started to get going for me and I, I enjoyed it but then the ending just kind of blew me away mm. and then watching it the second time I enjoyed it so much more so you're right and I think it's so clever the way that the this film is is done and directed because as I said in the earlier part there's not a lot of storyline yeah. really it's about a guy who's lost his brother on a boat on a fishing trip and that's kind of it but there's so much more goes with it and it's about the impact it's about grief mm. and it's about loss and you know I think that's unfortunately something that a lot of us have had to deal with yeah. and we can all kind of relate to not as much as the character here but I think there's a lot of impactfulness here and kind of the the over kind of um the voiceovers of the the townsfolk mm. that you never see that's so impactful you know it, well, when a boat goes down the families all respect the ones that's but the lost thing is, no one comes ashore the, 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 those voiceovers they don't sound like uh it's actors it sounds you know i thought i thought yeah. for a moment that he's maybe just because you know the the film is uh, it's filmed in uh, Gordon in sort of southern Aberdeenshire, and then you know mm. all, all up the northeast, there's a lot of towns and uh, villages that historically would that relied on fishing. It was the it was the industry. You know what I mean? The boats going out, fish factories fish merchants and stuff. So there's a lot of communities in Aberdeenshire that historically have survived from uh, from the fishing industry. And unfortunately, uh, all most of these communities have been have been affected by one of the fishing boats being lost at sea. So I yeah. thought maybe he had used testimonials 
by people from these communities. Because so, those voiceovers that you're talking about, they don't sound like they're being delivered by actors. They sound incredibly authentic. We yeah. know the way they're talking about the effect on such a community, the loss of a fishing boat, you know, is and the loss of, like, kind of young men from the community or whatever. You know what I mean? There's been no trace of the boat since it set out from the... It depends on the survivor's explanation. What, what happened? If he could explain why did he survive and they didn't? Search and rescue teams found no sign of the... You think to yourself, there's two brothers on that boat, you know, maybe they're should have been an effort to save each other, but yet only one survived. Oh, yeah. I mean, the one that impacts me the most is the the guy that says, uh, if you're out there and someone's going to happen, it's going to happen. If it's going to tick you, it'll tick Mm -hmm. you. And that's so much of a kind of, wow, that's what the people think. You know, you're going out in these fishing boats and risking your life to, to catch fish. And that's what these people do effectively you know the, yeah. the fishermen yeah i mean i've i've met a couple of guys when when i, when I lived in aberdeenshire as a teenager i met i've spoke to a couple of guys who were fishermen and they i remember one thing that one guy said to me once that really struck me was you know if we never wear a life jacket because if you fall if if, if the ship goes down and we fall you fall in the north sea you're never going to get rescued in time so it's you're better just to drown mm. because freezing to death is much is Jesus. much worse <laughs> you know what i mean but you know the way these guys are they, they they tell me these things so matter of fact and you're you know i'm like an impressionable 18 year old and i'm like oh my god this sounds fucking horrendous but these are guys that have li- that have lived and worked in that industry their whole lives and just a very matter of fact about it you know wow that's incredible yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, like to touch on what you said before, you know, the the themes of grief in this film, you know, like you know, obviously, we've all you, you mentioned. You, you and I fairly recently have individually experienced a loss and grief, and I think the the situation and with the film is it, this is it's one it's uh, it's traumatic grief. You know, Aaron has been there at the time of losing his brother but it's also the sort of shared experience of grief from the community so Kate Dickey plays the mother who has lost a son we uh, Jane Burley plays Jane who we learn was the long term uh, girlfriend of the of Michael Aaron's brother and they were supposed to get engaged and everything and she's sort of dealing with it in her way but Aaron's you know if the way the the path the film takes you on is you think that Aaron's trauma is leading him to a story that his mother used to tell him and his brother when they were little boys about a sort of devil fish out there in the sea and, you know, when it swallows you up. You know, everybody, everyone's still alive in there and everything else and he is determined to try and find his brother. But when he first starts talking about finding his brother, I was under the impression that he just wanted to find the body of his brother and bring him back and have closure in that sense. But as the film goes on, this sort of fantastical, um, what seems like a, a sort of fantasy of Aaron's starts to more and more come to the fore. And I wasn't quite sure, you know, I, I, I thought the film was just about the sort of, the, the sort of collapse of Aaron as a result of his trauma. But what did you think when when that element of the story started to come up? I think I originally thought that Aaron was obviously kind of suffering from PTSD of the whatever had happened mm. on the boat. And we never find out what happened yeah. 
on that boat, which I kind of like about the film. Who knows yeah. whatever went on? Um, I thought he was a, a deeply troubled individual that was suffering from PTSD. But as the film goes on, you find out, I think he's always had kind of issues yeah. in a way. Um, as it develops, Michael, his brother, who he evidently idolised, found him an embarrassment. Mm. And it, it's kind of earlier, it's teased when Michael... Smiley's character, Frank, says to him, you know, your brother thought you were a fucking embarrassment. Mm. But later on, Michael literally says those words yeah. in a kind of flashback home video that he was embarrassed by. And I think even at, at the end, which we will come back to, the, the the look on Michael's face when he kind of wakes up next to Aaron is almost like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I, 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 I think Aaron kind of, he had other issues before yeah. this happened. And the home video kind of clips of him not getting up off the sofa. And he had some sort of issue. And I think that that was what Michael maybe just tolerated because his mum made Mm. him. And I do wonder if this just exacerbated it, that he, that this trauma just kind of brought it to the fore. And he's a very troubled individual. And it's such a shame for him. Well, the thing is, like, you know, like the start of the film, to your earlier point, he does, like, Michael is, does seem to be a bit of a pedestal in Aaron's mind. And then I think mm. Michael, it's Michael Smiley's character who says, you know, something like your brother wasn't who you thought he was or he wasn't all he was cracked up to be or something like that. And then, you know, you, the whole sort of first, maybe even half of the film up until that scene between uh, George Mackay and uh, Michael Smiley, Michael seems like the ideal big brother. You know what I mean? Like, looking mm. out for his little brother. He's got my job on the boat. You know, they see the him and Jane, the three of them together, having a laugh and everything else. And then after that scene, in those flashback moments, you start to see elements of where Michael's been impatient with his brother. You know what I mean? And, over, and to mm. your point, you know, Aaron does seem to have always been a bit unusual, a bit eccentric, and Michael is is quite intolerant of it in you know in those later scenes and I, and I, f- I thought that was quite a strange sort of direction that the narrative takes because regardless of what we learn about Michael not being this amazing big brother that he's been built up to be in the first half of the film, Aaron is still determined to find him you know what I mean yeah. you know so I kind of warts and all Aaron's still determined to find his brother yeah but then are we presumed to establish that Aaron is obviously has some maybe form of autism and yeah can't kind of maybe correlate that that his big brother didn't like him in that way I mean he's it's his big brother who obviously idolized Mm -hmm. and then they've gone out to see his big brother's gotten this job who you kind of find out later on that he didn't really want to give him this job but okay and his first day out in sea the the boat whatever happens and we never know what happens Mm -hmm. happens and Aaron is the only survivor so it's a bit of guilt but also maybe a little bit of I don't know he still idolises his big brother yeah it's strange I mean the, the scenes where there's kind of sort of flashbacks to them as little boys playing hide and seek and Michael's in the wardrobe and then sort of later on in the film like that sort of third act when Aaron has he seems to have completely collapsed 
sort of mentally when he's sort of smashing the wardrobe up trying to find his brother mm. you know and it's sort of it's, it's I mean I think I don't know if if it's a bit of a flaw with the narrative or if I'm just not sort of smart enough to <laughs> to be able to I don't know I'm not sure but it's you know it's difficult to tell like certainly when the scene where that you mentioned when Michael's trying to get uh Aaron to move off the sofa that's does suggest that maybe Michael has always had some sort of uh, mental illness, whether it's autism or 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 he's just been a bit eccentric or whatever else. It's sort of it's kind of strange, but I mean the whole way the film's paced is you know with with the constant sort of flashbacks, the constant voiceovers, like the scenes with Aaron and the young guys on the island, you know, um, mm. this, this sort of straight, it's kind of weird the way they fit into it all. You know, they when we first meet them, they're hunting rabbits with fucking fireworks and sticks, like the fucking worst mm. feral fucking cunts that you'd ever come across in your life. Yeah, um, I noticed... Uh, John there um, from Ned's in a in a kind of crucial role, <laughs> and then later on it sort of goes to this sort of uh, night camera view of them in a bothy about wrestling. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, I don't mm. really understand what's going on here. And what's the actor called? Uh, Connor um, Connor McLachlan who plays who played John and Ned's, who is uh, the sort of ringleader here. Um, yeah, it's just I mean, all that is kind of weird. I'm not really sure what those scenes serve. In the story, other than you know, he does say you because know, he, he he sort of starts off like the sort of interested, but with a degree of sympathy to Aaron, the fact that he's the sole survivor of this um, horrible uh, shipping disaster, and then they're sort of interested in what's happened. They want him to tell, you know, but you must do you remember what happened? What happened? What happened? And then it sort of turns in that later scene when it's like, well, you used to get your brother to batter fuck out of me. Do you remember that? You know, but that was it was sort of later on in the film when uh, when this yeah I don't know I just those sort of scenes just. I wasn't quite sure what what purpose they served unless it was to highlight the fact that Aaron's a bit except you know Aaron might be mentally ill or whatever you know yeah but is that the whole point because Aaron obviously is kind of swayed by them because he's it's just after he's built his raft mm. and then he's walking down the road and then they shout him yeah. and he's quite easily swayed to go back to theirs and then they ask him about what happened and he's like I don't know mm. like I, I don't remember and then all of a sudden he's topless wrestling an 11 year old <laughs> and like, what the fuck is going on here and then he's got him in a chokehold yeah. which you're like okay I really don't understand what's happening here and you get the line get off him you pedo yeah. and <laughs> But but they've encouraged this. Mm. They've obviously set this up, this kind of topless wrestling debacle. Then, yeah, it comes out kind of like, well, what is this all about? It, and it obviously, I think Aaron is kind of mentally ill and they're just kind of pushing him towards this. They know, I don't, I don't know, they want to find out what's happened, but no one ever finds well, out. That's the thing, you know, the whole... There's, there's a, I think probably the, the most powerful scene in the film is the one when Aaron goes to the pub to have a conversation with uh, the fa- the father of one of the other uh, men, Davey. yeah, Davy, um, who was lost in the boat, and um, you know, the, everybody's sort of looking for kind of closure on what happened. You know, how how could one young guy, the most inexperienced of all the guys on the boat, how could he survive and the rest of 
the fishermen didn't make it. And the, the you know, the, so the the community's still reeling. And this guy's like, but you know, Aaron asks him. He's so determined to try and get back out to sea, try and find some trace of his brother. And this, and uh, Davy's dad says to him, you know, you've not once asked how me and my wife are doing. You know. He said, and he, he goes on to say how he knows that um, everybody had concerns about taking him up, taking Aaron along on the shipping trip, on the sh- on the fishing trip. But you know, like that that scene, you know, it, and the way it starts off quite sort of sympathetic, and Davy's dad, it seems, is you know, he's he's open and he's willing to have a conversation with this boy who the rest of the community has got severe reservations about, and there's gossip and rumours and speculation about and then when he finds out the reason for the conversation and it's not like he didn't like flip the table over but it's you know it's Mm. a really powerful performance in the sense that it just sort of builds in in, and you know the more he says the more he sort of lets that frustration that's building come into his his performance and stuff and uh, I think in that scene I'm not sure who the actor is but I think he fucking acts George Mackay right off the fucking screen he's absolutely fantastic as the as the oh. grieving father I remember him saying to me he didn't think you were right for the boat said having someone like you out there was dangerous why do you think he'd say that eh Maybe you can tell me why I'll never see my boy again. Why I'll never get a chance to even put him in the ground. Yet here you are, large as life, asking if you can come onto my boat. Leave. Oh, it's amazing. But then do you think that Aaron knew what he was saying? Again, that links back to is it kind of artistic or is it trauma? Like he's kind of blinkered by this. Just his one vision is to see his brother again. Yeah. And he, he's convinced his brother is alive. So he, he's just completely blinkered by that. And when he, he's, he doesn't even realise that Davy's son, John had died yeah. on that boat. And it kind of comes as like a total shock to him. Like, oh, okay. And when he says, you know, John said you were dangerous. Yeah. Like, So again, that links into everyone always kind of knew that there was someone up with Aaron. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it sort of speaks to this, again, this sort of small community. Everybody knows each other. Everybody knows, you know, the ones to watch, I guess is one way of putting it. But, you know, obviously this kid's grown up in this community and he's always been a bit unusual in his peer group. 
and, and the older he's gotten, the more people's attention, his unusualness, uh, has sort of come to. You know, yeah. It's uh, and what 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 I think the film does well is there's a real sort of a real kind of claustrophobia about it mm. because you know Aaron is the character that we spend the most time with. You know, there are some scenes mm. with uh, Kate Dickey when she's at work and she's talking to her colleagues, and there's uh, there's we see a, a scene with Jane teaching the nursery kids and things but for the most part we're with Aaron most of the time and because the village because the community is so small there's there's sort of nowhere he can go you know they unless he's sort of wading out into the North Sea or he's in the rock pools Mm. or or that sort of swimming pool that him and Jane go to about midway through the film when they go swimming um, they sort of break into the what is that place they break into I thought I took it to be like the kind of community swimming pool but I'm not so sure well, that's what I took it to be yeah, yeah a, a swimming pool was there any point in the film you thought that him and Jane were going to end up shagging <laughs> well that that point because you know she initially she seems to be getting something out of spending time with him you know and mm. he's quite see he seems quite relaxed with her you know they talk sort of fondly yeah. about michael to some extent they have that moment when they break into the swimming pool and then the way it sort of turns where she doesn't you know when we get that great scene with michael smiley as jane's father i didn't really i couldn't really understand why it swung why 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 jane suddenly went from seemingly to be getting something out of spending time with them to not want to spend any time with them at all you know what i mean well i mean try to Kind of grab well, but before her. that, you know, when Michael Smiley says she doesn't want to spend, she doesn't want to spend any time with you and all that. I I took that as him saying that because in a previous scene he says to Jane, "You don't want to be spending time with him. Why are you hanging out with him?" And then I took that as him saying that to to Aaron without her permission. Effectively, well, that's what I thought at first too, but then. After that whole sort of interaction between them and Jane sort of saves the day and takes Aaron out and they walk along the front together and she does, she says to him, like, you know, I don't think we should spend so much time together after that mm. moment. And because and I, I thought, well, well, you know, was her dad speaking for her or did, did she feel that way? And she'd had a conversation with her dad, and he's just passed it on to Aaron. It was it wasn't very clear, but um, but yeah, I, I did think that I thought the story was going to take a bit of a different turn. I mean, re- really, I thought the film up until the last sort of half an hour, I really thought the film was just a sort of study in grief and trauma and the effects on a community that that sort of thing can have. I it wasn't. I didn't really realize the direction that the film was going in until maybe about 10 minutes from the end I thought it was just going to I really thought the ending of the film would be uh, Aaron getting taken away by Brian McCarty to psychiatric hospital somewhere or he would end up uh, sort of dying looking for his brother in the sea well I can't wait to speak about the ending with you Um, but let's do a quick recap in terms of the actors so George Mackay he had three films come out on the same weekend uh, in the UK so it was Sunshine and Leith for Those in Peril and a film called How I Live Mm. so quite a weekend for George Mackay and obviously we haven't watched How I Live but in terms of Sunshine and Leith or for Those um, in Peril how do you feel he fared? Well I mean you know you can you know the listeners can go back and listen to the Sunshine and Leith episode. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really 
enjoy him in Sunshine and Leith. I did enjoy him in this. You know, it's it's a it's a very intense performance, and he's you know he's he's great at the sort. He's great at playing the sort of psychologically crumbling Aaron. I've not seen uh, How I Live Now, but I did see him in um, Sam Mendes' film 1917, set in the First World War. After. I saw um, Sunshine and Leith, and I thought he was very good in it. His Scottish accent's not great, really, in this mm. or in Sunshine and Leith. But so I did wonder, you know, I wonder why they, I wonder why George Mackay, because he's, he's he was born in Hammersmith in London. Why is he getting picked for all these sort of the performances that require a Scottish accent? Well, the um, the director and writer of this, Paul Wright, uh, he grew up in a small town on the east coast of Fife. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of this film is based on his stories of when he was young and he heard about this growing up with this sea monster. He originally wanted to cast local actors Mm -hmm. for this film. And you see that in a lot of the other actors. But George Mackay sent in a self-tape of because he wanted to audition for this. So Paul took him for an audition. He was still very sceptical of, uh, I don't know, I don't know what an English actor. But they did a full day of improv. And, yeah, apparently Paul was like, okay, yeah, I'm sold. Mm. I'm going to, yeah, cast you. And to be fair, I think he is good in the role, but I agree, his accent, much like on Sunshine on Leith, is, uh, yeah, debatable. Especially when he's acting with what feels like an entirely Scottish company. You know, you've got Brian McCarty, Kate Dickey, uh, the young guys... Like you know, like shockingly, all appear to come all appear to come from Glasgow, <laughs> but yet living in this northeastern fishing community. Well, I watched the interview, and George says that he kept up his Scottish accent in between takes um, because he didn't want to go out of it, and it was so easy because most of the cast and crew were Scottish. But he didn't want to do it all the time because it would feel like he was taking the piss. Right. But yeah, I I agree with you. With actors like Kate Dickey and Brian McCarty, yeah. and with a pretty predominant Scottish cast, mm. you're going to... Yeah, he does struggle. Jane Burley, uh, who also isn't Scottish, I thought her accent mm. was very good. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, she was very, very good. Very, good. Very true to life. So, in terms of cast, I mean, I guess next we come to Kate Dickey as, um, as Aaron's mum. Kathy. Yeah, she's fantastic. I mean, it's for me, this is her film. You know, they although you know she's not got the screen time that George Mackay has. I mean, she's absolutely. I mean, you know, we. I think probably the biggest thing we've had Kate Dickey in has been Red Road, and in Red Road, mm. she's playing a sort of similar bereaved character. Only the difference is in this one, she still has her son left, whereas in Red Road, she she's lost her husband and her child. Yeah, she's absolutely fantastic in it. Yeah, she's great. The scene that I probably... And it's not that she's not great in it, because she's fantastic in it, but it really had me sort of, not squirming, but tense, was the scene in the karaoke, when she... When, when someone... And it was kind of weird the way the whole scene set up. Somebody has volunteered her to sing a song. She's not been quite as pariahed as Aaron, but you get that feeling that there's still a, because he's come back and she's looking after him, there's still a bit of animosity toward her, but not to, not to the same extent. And somebody's put in a karaoke request for her to go up and sing. I mean, it seems like quite a cruel thing to do to someone who's grieving the loss of a child to volunteer them to sing karaoke. But what's even more unbelievable is that the, she wouldn't just say, 
I'm not fucking singing, fuck off, that she's felt <laughs> sort of duty-bound to get up and make it through a couple of verses of the first time I ever saw your face. But then to go up and say, I dedicate this to my two books. Exactly. It was just when like, oh. I haven't, I didn't know I was going to sing this, but and delivers one of the worst karaoke performances ever seen. No offence to Kate Dickey, a masterful performance in this film, and maybe it's done purposely yeah. because uh, it's a grieving mother, but wow. It was an odd. It's an odd moment in the film. It's an odd moment in the film that's sort of peppered with odd moments. <laughs> you know, is it just to show that the the mother how much she she loves her sons, as in sons? Because obviously, people have a lot of a lot of people in the town are upset about Aaron, and she's trying to convey to the town that she is still a loving mother yeah. of two sons. Yeah, I think so. You know, um, there's maybe an element that she wants to remind people that as odd and difficult as the situation with Aaron is, he's still her son and she still is going to support him regardless of how odd you know there's the moment when you know she worked because she works in a in a fish processing facility and she goes to ask her boss if there's a job for Aaron even like an unpaid job just so she can keep him close by and keep an eye on him because when she's at work she's she obviously knows that he's going through severe trauma worse than hers because she wasn't on the ship and she needs to keep him close by and her boss is like it's not the right place for him watching this for the first time I wrote in my notes I could have done more Michael Smiley mm-hmm. and then re-watching it for the second time I pick up on that he'd hit his wife once so much that she didn't talk for a year yeah and then re-watching it again he's He's quite a violent guy and he's quite a violent and scary man. But still, I wouldn't have minded seeing Modem on the screen. He's fantastic in this. I mean, I know him as, as you probably do, as tires Spaced, from yeah. Space. And um, he's he's been in so many things. Like, he was in Luther for a while and, like, he's been in so many things. But in this, he is a very violent and scary man. But kind of, you're kind of on his side against Aaron because he's just trying to protect his daughter really you know everything eh do you know that um, she sees you as a fucking embarrassment she can't stand being around you did you know that she's going to help me find Michael you what She's going to help me find my brother. <laughs> you're a piece of work, aren't you? I know you're out there, but you are wired to the fucking moon, big lad, aren't you? You see, you forget. I knew your brother, and um, he had to say this, but he wasn't everything you thought he was. Oh, I knew his place better than you did. fucking funny as well I think that's I think that's true of a couple of the actors in this I mean like Kate Dickey I could have I could, I'd like to have seen more of Brian McCarty mm. I'd like to have seen more of as well because Brian McCarty's a fantastic actor yeah um, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, like he's—I feel like he's really underused in this, in in much the same way that Michael Smiley is as well. Hugely, you know, hugely. There's, there's yeah. an element to your point where 
good to understand a bit more about him and you know what was his relationship like with Michael because you're sort of led to believe that Michael and Jane have known each other since they were little kids there's that moment when Aaron uh, talks about them getting married in the garden when they were wee and Mm. she's got like a tablecloth in her head as a sort of veil and everything else and then like I mentioned earlier there's that point where uh, Michael Smiley says, you know, your brother wasn't everything that you thought he was. So it'd be good to, it'd be good, being good to explore a bit more of that relationship and, and not to understand, you know, what was it about Michael that Jane's dad couldn't get on with or, you know, or vice versa, whatever else. You know, I think, you know, if you're someone like Paul Wright and he's not got an awful lot of uh, uh, directing credits under his belt, but if you can get a cast that's got people like Kate Dickey, Michael Smiley and Brian McCarty in it, what, you know, why wouldn't you just, like, fill the movie with uh, scenes with those actors in it? You know what I mean? That's, I, don't, I just don't really get it. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. I think they are um, wasted talents in terms of that because they are just tremendous. Smiley, the, the what, two scenes he's in, he just commands the screen mm. and he's so good. And the way he turns an Aaron, just he's so nice to him and then just fucking turns. And, you know, your little, your brother was a fucking fanny yeah. as well. Like, it's, it's, oh. It's just so good the way that he delivers that. And when Aaron breaks into the house, doesn't break in, but kind of storms yeah. in and, and Smiley just batters him. It's so kind of fly on the wall documentary, mm. the way it's filmed. But you're you're so invested in it. And ah, fantastic scenes. Um, Okay, so we've covered a lot of kind of the film, but we haven't really covered the ending in terms of the what happens there. So I think it's 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 probably time we we take that on board. So we we come to terms that Aaron is missing his brother, but he has to go and solve something. He he tries to make a makeshift raft and it doesn't work. But eventually he takes a rowing boat out and I mean cuts himself with yeah a knife. That was hard to watch. He, he cuts cuts gills mm. into himself to make himself into a fish <laughs> and very hard to watch. Yeah. That those scenes are. I, I yeah I, I admit I had to kind of look away in a in a bit yeah yeah the ending it's I don't I mean I'm still a bit I'm still a bit conflicted how I feel about the ending part of me thinks that it's fucking great you know what I mean it's because but then another part of me thinks. I'm not sure that it... I, I don't... I mean, it, maybe it does. I don't. Maybe I'm just not clever enough to see it, but I don't know if it really fits the rest of the, the sort of style of the film. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe I'm just not... Maybe I'm not clever enough. Maybe I'm not intellectual enough to appreciate it. Yeah, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, obviously, switch off now. But if you're listening this far, I presume you've seen the film. So the whole premise of the film is that Aaron is fighting this sea monster that his mother has told him about and towards the end Aaron goes out and on a rowing boat on his own cuts his neck with gills and jumps into the sea and then all of a sudden his mother turns up on the beach and there's this big red monster Mm. on the beach now genuinely the first time I watched that I was like what the fuck is this (laughs) and it sat with me for about 20 minutes and I was like actually that is fucking genius because the whole premise of the film is building up to this monster and they re-watching it again there's so many points during the film that George Mackay's character mentions about this monster and then before the end scene you know he makes Kate Dickey's 
character, his mum, tell him the story about this monster. And it's about this monster that kind of took over this village and the only way to salvage things was this one young boy had to go in and salvage it and save the whole village from the monster. And that's the whole thing. That That's what it is that George Mackay's character has done. Mm-hmm. Saved everyone from the monster. A brave young boy comes to the rescue. He jumps into the ocean is transformed into a fish, which is why he's cut his gills, and swims down to the devil's lair to free his prisoners. But you know what I thought initially? So just before Kate Dickey's character runs down to the beach, there is a flashback to Aaron and Michael on the jetty with goldfish Mm. in goldfish bags and i <laughs> yeah I, there's that myth that goldfish will grow to match their environment <laughs> i thought that one of them had chucked a goldfish in the sea and uh the goldfish and the fish that washes up on the beach is one is one of the goldfish um <laughs> and then obviously we see that scene of uh, Aaron and Michael um, sitting on something I don't know like a, a raft or something like that um, Aaron having rescued his brother from the, the belly of the beast so yeah I don't know I mean I, I didn't dislike the ending because it, I'd been thinking about it sort of constantly <laughs> since I say since uh, watching the film but I'm still not I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure. I, I'm not. I just. I, I like the whole sort of fable element to the film, but the fact that the film up until that point just seems like a real study of trauma and grief doesn't feel like it's leading up to this sort of romantic fantastical ending at all is this the the sea creature? Is this Aaron lying there like he's taking his own life because the guilt of what he's done, and we never know what happened on that boat. Whatever is done is one like last ditch effort of like to find like what happened to his brother and trying to find the light of kind of heaven. But the fact he's cutting his neck with gills and jumping into the ocean, there's something there, something happened on that boat that we will never know about. And I kind of love that that we never know what happened on there. Did Aaron murder them all? Like, we, well, we'll never well, the know. The boat was attacked by a massive goldfish. <laughs> well, yeah, apparently, yeah. Um, no, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not... The, the fact that it's a really thought-provoking ending is kind of enough for me. You know what I mean? Like, I enjoyed it, you know? Yeah. I enjoyed it. Like, I mean, can't quite get how he marries everything that's come before to the way the film ends. But I think he could have maybe been a bit slicker and smoother about it. But otherwise, I like the fact that uh, it sort of ends that way and, you know, all of Aaron's strange... You know, everything that's weird about Aaron is sort of... Is sort of Born out, and you know he's not. He's sort of uh, what's what I'm looking for. He, he's he's sort of emancipated at the end of the film from his uh, his odd behaviour. So it turns out that he was right the whole time. So do you think he was struggling with PTSD or just mentally ill? I don't know. I mean, the ending would suggest that it was neither. It was really he was it was he was just wanted to get his brother. It was revenge, even that it was that he was motivated by, and but the fact that he couldn't convince everybody else of the reality of what had happened. But it's only his brother. 
that we see him with. So it did make me wonder if um, if the ending is perhaps metaphorical for something else. You know, I mean, the, you you mentioned earlier, you know, was was the big fish actually Aaron being washed up on the shore? And Kate Dickey's actually running to her son, and maybe the scene with Aaron and Michael is perhaps some sort of heavenly sort of scene, perhaps or suggestion. But I don't know. The, the fact that it's open to interpretation is is pretty cool as well. But yeah, yeah as um, like when they wake up, Michael looks quite annoyed <laughs> to be kind of like, "Oh, for fuck's sake, <laughs> I've got to stick with you for eternity." This ginger, this fucking ginger cunt again. I did notice that um, George Mackay's skin is absolutely appalling in this film. Did you notice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did notice that. Yeah. How old was he yeah. when? Yeah. Was that on part? That must have been a purpose, though. Sure. Well, what, what age is uh, What age is George Mackay? Let's have a look. He uh, was born nineteen ninety two, so he'd have been twenty one in this film. So you'd have thought he met a twenty one. Yeah, yeah. You'd have thought he might have grown out of, uh, of the old uh, zits by this point. <laughs> maybe not maybe it's makeup to your point maybe he's playing younger any other points do you want to bring up or is it time to put for those in peril through the Swally Awards I think we should put for those in peril through the Swally Awards what's up first Greg okay first award uh, the James Cosmo Award being in everything Scottish I've got Brian McCarty oh, I had Dickie because Dickie does feel quite oh, prolific it, but either I think I, yeah, yeah either okay. either are strong I'll go with either. Okay. The Bobby the Barman Award for the best pub. So there's only really one pub uh, where there's a Kaylee going on before the sun's gone down, bizarrely. But, you know. <laughs> no, well, that's the pub, the Kaylee, but then there's a pub where um, he goes to speak to Davy. But there's not pass through the Kaylee to go and meet Davy, because that's the scene no. when Jane looks over at him and says, no? Okay. No, it's a different scene. It's a completely different scene, a completely different pub. Mm. Uh, so there's a pub that he goes to the the Kaylee in, which m- looks m- more like a dance hall. Yeah. And then there's a pub where he goes to go and speak to Davy in, and it does look like a nice pub, but I bet it fucking stinks of fish. <laughs> yeah, probably. So it's a no from it's me. A no. Yeah, I agree. Right, next award then is the Jake McQuillan Yartizu Award. What did you go for here? Uh, it's Frank throwing Aaron out the house. Yep. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had, I had. Well, I've got fight with uh, Jane's dad, but I've also got um, Aaron wrestles lit, written down because it's a bit of slapping and stuff that goes on. Is that TZ though, or nah, I suppose not. is that just a little bit of naked teenage wrestling? A bit of shirt off, all wholesome, good, clean family fun. Yeah, you're probably right. Next award, then the Hugh McGregor Award for gratuitous nudity. Not really any nudity in the film. No, there's not any. I, not any proper. I've, I've to, written down yeah. swimming with Jane, even though no one's got their clothes off, but Jane is in her bra and knickers. Yeah, we will include that then, that's fine. Okay. Um the we got for the Francis Begbie Award for gratuitous swearing. There's a few things, but I did go for Michael Smiley. Um basically his whole speech when he's berating Aaron. Um, and he does say he was a wee fucking fanny as well. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I quite like that. That made me tickle. But th- th- there was a few occasions. What did you go for? Uh, I've got that written down. I've also got the word growler written down just because you don't hear it very often. I, <laughs> it's not it's, it's not really swearing, but uh, yeah. You, just don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get a lot of growlers these days. Um, no. Make me laugh. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't get a lot of growlers these days, put it that way. Okay, archetypal Scottish moment. Um, it has to be singing Loch Lomond at a karaoke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is up there. I've also got written down Afternoon Kayleigh. <laughs> I didn't get it anywhere else. Uh, and then the last award then is the Sean Connery Award. Who won the film for you? Kate, Kate Dickey. Dickey all day long. I, I, I sort of gave it away earlier on. Yeah. I think it's definitely her film. Yeah, um, she's fantastic. She's so good. Absolutely fantastic. As a embroiled, kind of peddled yeah. mother, she's she's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Have we ever seen anything in Kate Dickey that she hasn't been amazing? Well, but what I like about her is that she, and I, I don't I don't say this in a negative way, but she, she is a very regular looking person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. she and she sort of, you know, she she sort of embodies and really, you know, she sort of invests herself. I always feel that there's a bit of her when you see her, and you know, like we've done her twice. <laughs> Come <laughs> out, we've covered her twice now. Um, in you know, Red Roads, as mentioned earlier. She's playing a character who's grieving a traumatic loss. In this film, arguably, she's playing a character who is grieving a traumatic loss, but there's no real similarity between the performances. You know, in Red Road, she's driven for revenge. Her character's driven by her loss for revenge on the person she holds responsible. Whereas in this, she's, you know, the character's driven by just trying to save her surviving son from his own trauma. You know what I mean? Um, and she's absolutely outstanding in it. She's so good. Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, Kate Dickey is just a phenomenal actress. And yeah, she's brilliant. The, just heartbreaking, mm-hmm. actually, at times. Yeah. Absolutely heartbreaking. And the way she speaks to Aaron at times when she's trying to convey to him that they maybe she had, well, he has to, to maybe go in somewhere. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah she's fantastic. Um, so, uh, my choice was for those in peril, which means it comes back to you. What are we watching for the next episodes of The Culture Spiller? Well, I think we need to look at something a little bit lighter <laughs> uh, on the next episode. Thank <laughs> fuck <laughs> for <Spiller> that. <laughs> so, I'd like to look at a film that I have not seen in years since it first came out. Uh, but I remember I really enjoyed it when I first watched it. So... Starring James Lands, who is better known probably now as Trent Crim from Ted Lasso. But he'll always be Ben from I'm Alan Partridge and Barney from the book group to me. And uh, Kate Ashfield, who is probably better known as Liz, who is Sean's girlfriend from Sean the Dead. So I'd like to look at 2001 film. And Greg, we're going to go. What was Thursday always known as? in the UK or in Scotland. It was always known as... Late Night Shopping. (laughs) Thank you. So yes, we're going to look at 2001's Late Night Shopping. (laughs) Oh, Late late Night was like, I think the shop shut at 8 (laughs) o'clock. It wasn't that late. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I always struggled to find this film anywhere, which is why we haven't done it in the Swally, but I find out someone has magically uploaded this YouTube so I will put this, well, I'll put it in the description of the episode if anyone wants to do their homework. But if you want to look for it on YouTube, 
Just type in late night shopping and you will find the film. Right. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can. You can email us on cultureswelly at gmail.com or you can follow us on the socials at cultureswellypod or on Twitter at SwallyPod. And get in touch with us with any news stories that you've seen you'd like us to uh, cover or anything you'd like us to cover on the podcast. And Greg, we have a wonderful website now, don't we? <laughs> um, yeah, we do. You can find us at cultureswally.com. You can find links to other episodes uh, and some uh, essays about Scottish television and Scottish horror and one or two other things. So come and check us out over there. Wonderful. All right. Well, you have to do some late night shopping. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm off to watch late night shopping um, because it's uh, it's still quite early here. So, uh, so yeah, we make the most of the evening and uh, settle down for a bit of a uh, bit of a uh, Trent Crim and Liz off Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> Magic. Well, you can text me whilst you're watching it because I've seen it a couple of times so you can uh, text me your thoughts. Okay. Right. Until next time, then, guys. Until next time. One day, the devil in the ocean cursed the town. It took all the fish and all the little children into its big, dirty belly. And everyone was scared and everyone was sad. And they knew that only if the devil was caught would things go back to the way they were before.